Now, I can already hear some of you sitting at home watching this and you're getting ready to talk about it with your house church and and thinking through this and talking through this and praying through this as a group. And you're thinking, wow, we're going to have a whole sermon on one verse, just six words. That's crazy. And if you think that, I would say you're you're probably new and welcome. Uh, This is the kind of thing that we like to do around here. In fact, I'm actually going to try and do a little bit more than just one sermon on these six words. I'm trying to do something a little different here. I'm trying to accomplish two goals. Um, This is the final verse in the letter of 1 John. And so this brings to a conclusion our 17-week study of John's letter. And uh, it's been a great time. We're going to talk about what this means for us in light of 1 John a little bit. But I'm trying to, to work toward another goal, which is introducing a new series on the topic of idolatry. So not only am I preaching a whole sermon on these six words, we're actually going to have six more weeks on the topic of idolatry as we expand this out and consider it more. So I'm trying to do two things. One is to conclude our study of 1 John, and the other is to introduce a new series on idolatry. I know also, just as an aside, that some of you uh, might be interested in what we're going to be doing through the summer and then in September and beyond. Uh, In the summer, we're going to be studying a psalm each Sunday, and so we're going to be looking through that. Now, the psalms themselves have been chosen out of our weekly readings, our our daily readings. So if you're tracking along on the Bible Project Bible reading plan with us, we've gone ahead and looked at which psalms we're reading for our devotions that week, and then one of those psalms has been picked, and we'll preach on it on that Sunday. Uh, Following the summer, kind of mid-September, we will begin a lengthy study of 1 Corinthians that I'm really looking forward to, and then lots of things to come following that. So it gives you a little bit of a framework for where we're going and what we're doing. One more thing, just before I jump into the text here today, um, just a few book recommendations that will go very well along with this new series on idolatry. Uh, the first is a book by Elise Fitzpatrick called Idols of the Heart. And I highly recommend this book, uh, Learning How to Long for God Alone. It's a wonderful look on the topic of idolatry and how we can have freedom from our sin and breakthrough in different areas of struggle that we might have in our lives. The second one I want to introduce to you or recommend to you is called Gospel Truth. Reason by Brad Bigney. This is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. Again, same topic, bit of a different angle and, and some different thoughts on it. Again, really good, really practical, really helpful book. And then the third one is one that uh, is by an author that you probably know. Tim Keller wrote a book years ago called Counterfeit Gods. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. And so I highly recommend all three of these books. I'm going to quote all three of them today in this message. So Idols of the Heart by Elise Fitzpatrick, Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney, and Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And so I would commend those resources to you. We're going to be in this for today and then another six weeks. And so maybe you want to pick those up and read through them this summer, whatever that looks like for you. Okay, here's the big question. The big question is, why on earth is John finishing this letter to these folks that he's writing to with one verse that is a plea to them to guard themselves from idols? Why is he doing this? I want to try and answer that by looking at idolatry like this. Idolatry, what it is, why it matters, and what to do about it. Idolatry, what it is, why it matters, and what to do about it. So we're going to look first, what is idolatry? 
Now, after all that John has said about the real Jesus and how to follow the real Jesus and how to be the real community of Jesus people and how to love one another and how to walk in the truth and the light of the gospel, the question is, again, why is he talking about idols all of a sudden? John's written a compelling letter, and then to end it, prior to this single verse that we're looking at, last week we looked at the the conclusion, a passage that I think is beautiful and gives us great confidence in terms of what John was trying to communicate. He was going out on a high note last week when we talked about our confidence in Jesus, and our confidence in Jesus that leads to confidence that he hears our prayer, and confidence that he protects us and watches over us, and confidence that we have a place to belong, a community to belong to. We looked at that last week. And in a certain sense, that was truly going out on a high note. And then we're looking at this verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You're saying, why is, why is there sort of a strange ending on this letter? Just sort of drops a little bomb in here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, we might look at it and think John's writing to a bunch of Christians. So why is he now talking about idolatry? It's a fair question. Some people make the argument that the city they lived in was full of idols and small g gods that sort of demanded to be worshipped in their community. And so John's warning them against falling back into the temptation and the old habits of worshipping the god of the sea or the god of the, uh, of the harvest or the god of the sun or the god of the rain or the god of fertility or the god of war, whatever it is that they may have been tempted to do. I don't think that's it. It's not not it. It's just not all of it. Surely he knows these Christians have stopped all of that. These are the people he's writing to who are most serious about their faithfulness to Jesus. And and he knows that when he writes this letter. I think he's getting at something else. See, all the way through 1 John, he's been paying careful attention to pointing out the errors of those who were false teachers among them. They were preaching a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Gospels. They were preaching a different Jesus than John had delivered to them as they were evangelized by Jesus' followers. Anytime you follow the false Jesus of these false teachers, it would involve worshiping a false God instead of the true God, Jesus Christ. That, by definition, is idolatry. In 1 John, keeping yourselves from idols, guarding yourselves from idols, means making sure you're not following a Jesus, but the Jesus. He's saying guard yourselves from worshiping someone or something other than the real, crucified, and risen Jesus. And then you could say, well, thanks, John, no problem. Short text, short sermon. We don't really need a whole series on idolatry. I've got no desire to worship a false Jesus or bow down to some kind of stone or wooden or brass or golden image or idol. I'm good on this one, Brett. Thank you very much. I don't have any statues of Buddha in my house. I don't have any totem poles in my backyard. I don't have anything crafted by human hands that I'm bowing down to, so I'm good. I'd say, hang on. Hang on. We need to ask ourselves what idolatry really is. Don't forget, John is writing this letter to faithful followers of Jesus, and he is warning them to keep themselves from idols. We need to know what idolatry really is, and all of that kind of idolatry is only part of it. See, idolatry can be external, in a sense of bowing down and paying homage to something. 
paying homage to someone other than God. It's, it's an externalization in a sense of worship of what you believe. That is a kind of idolatry. But idolatry can also be internal in the heart of the person and it can remain there without being externalized in front of some graven image or carved image. Yes, it can be external in the sense that we can go and visit shrines and see places where people truly bow down to idols in that sense, but it also can be internal idols of the heart. Let me show you a few things. In Ezekiel chapter 14, you can read about this. The prophet Ezekiel is talking about the idols of the leaders of God's people, Israel, and how the leaders have taken idols and and they've made them the idols of their heart, he says. There's an internalization of something going on where their idolatry is in their heart. Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk is prophesying about the, the enemy, the Babylonians. And he's saying their God is their strength. And what he means is they worship their power. It's not an outward external idol that you bow down to. It's the reality of something they possess that they have allowed to become you know, preeminent in their lives. They, they, their power, their strength is their God. Idolatry, though, again, external or internal, I'm showing you that there's internal examples here. 1 Samuel 15, when King Saul disobeys the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel, Samuel calls that disobedience idolatry. He ceased, the, the, the king, Saul, ceased to trust God and started trusting in his power and wealth. And Samuel called it out, that disobedience, he called it idolatry. Now we all can together as a group say a collective, oh, I might need to pay attention to that. None of those are physical creations that people bowed down to and made offerings to. They're all internal idols of the heart where trust in God was replaced by trust in other things. There was an exchange that was made where God was removed from his throne and something else was elevated. Well, then we can say, well, I mean, Jesus came. He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended. He rules and reigns over all things. And so Jesus clarified all of that. We're good, right? Again, let me remind you that John is writing to Christians, very faithful Christians, and he's writing that they remain faithful. He's telling them to guard themselves from idols. Paul the Apostle writes the same kind of thing to Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says that those who covet are acting as idolaters. He says the same thing to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3, where he says that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is a heart-level sin of inordinate desire for something that is not yours, which, if you let it, will be turned into a false god. That's what he's saying. That is idolatry. That Christians can be tempted to have idols. All I want you to see is that idolatry is not just an Old Testament problem. It's not just an ancient problem. It's not just an external and visible problem. It's not just a comparative religion problem for Hindus or Buddhists or others who bow down in front of a carved or sculpted image or statue. It's a problem of the heart, and we need to guard ourselves against it. That's what this is telling us. Keep yourselves from idols. 
Let me give you three definitions of biblical idolatry, one from each of the three books that I recommended already. Elise Fitzpatrick said, Idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. They are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. Idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father in search of what we think we need. Our idols are our loves gone wrong. All those things we love more than we love Him. The things we trust for our righteousness or okayness. Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods, he says, What is an idol? Is it, any, it is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. And Brad Bigney says an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. Now, I could give you a hundred examples in at least ten big, broad categories of idolatry at work in our lives, in the city around us, and even at times in our own hearts. I, I, I could list them and bring them out to you. I'm going to give you just some categories of it without specific examples, but we, we can have religious idols. This is so important for us to understand as Christians. We can have religious idols where we produce such a distorted view of God that we end up worshiping a false God, which is what John is primarily worried about in 1 John. That there were false teachers who presented a false view of God, and he's saying to the Christians there, don't fall to that. Don't believe a lesser culturally formed Jesus. Believe in the real Jesus. We can have sexual idols that relate to false and elevated views of romance and worship physical beauty and appearance. We can have occultic idols. It's the worship of actual false gods and witchcraft. We can have political or economic idols of the right wing and the left wing and everybody in between where the market or political ideology is meant to usher in some kind of heaven-like utopia where the political and the marketplace leaders themselves are venerated as messianic figures. We can have racial and nationalistic idols. We can have relational idols where we have singleness and marriage and parenting and conversations with our relationships with our family of origin and other little subcultures within our city and society that we want to be accepted into that are all highly relational and they can be very idolatrous and you can try and climb ladders and do all sorts of things. We can have intellectual, ideological, and phys- uh, philosophical idols that try and make sense of the world apart from God. We can have cultural idols that we've made out of freedom and uh, independence and individualism, different cultural ideas that are part of our generation in our context right now that become elevated to the place of being idols. There are also idols of comfort and ease where some kind of vision of perpetual vacation Luxury, contentment can actually rule your life where you never risk anything because you don't want to lose your comfort and ease. 
You don't want to go and serve God in some radical way because you have built a life of ease that you are protecting and you've elevated it as an idol. This is the kind of thing that you can catch yourself not having a meaningful conversation about anything to do with the scriptures, your faith, or what God's called you to do, and you're just always planning the next vacation. It's been a tough year for comfort and ease idols. The point is, not all of the things you want are idols, but anything you want in an ultimate way, apart from the will of God, no matter how good it is or how lovely it is, can become an idol. An idol is something or someone you have elevated to a place of functional prominence and importance over and above God, where if you lost it, you would feel broken. So in a sense, that's what idolatry is. And we're going to talk about that for the next six weeks. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? If you're tracking with what I've said so far, and you're already seeing why it matters to listen to John when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, that, that, that's good. But, but why? Why keep ourselves from idols? Okay, Because you only have one interior heart throne one place of preeminence and prominence in your life, and that place belongs to God and no other. God does not share. He is a jealous God, and he's jealous for your affections, not in the way that you and I are jealous for things in life, but in a holy, pure, and perfect way where his jealousy is for our good. You only have one throne in your heart, and God insists that that place is for him. We're going to look at this more in a couple weeks, but I want you to understand that idolatry is fundamentally a worship issue. It's an issue of who or what is functionally enthroned in your life. And you might ask the question, how do I know if I've entered into idolatry with something that I really like or love? How do I know if I've turned something good into something ultimate, if I've turned something normal into an idol? How do I know? Well, if an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God, that's what Brad Bigney said, then it means that we're going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get it. So you know that you've elevated something to a place of idolatry when you know that you're willing to sin to get what you want. That's one side of it. The other side of that coin is that you know that when you don't get what you want, you're willing to sin. You're willing to sin to get what you want, but if you don't get what you want, you might sin. We're going to talk about this for weeks to come. Now, this whole idea is nearly as old as humanity. Adam and Eve stood in the midst of the Garden of Eden, enjoying all that God had created and all that he had given them and all he had blessed them. They were finding joy and knowing him and walking with him, and they're beholding his beauty and splendor, and their hearts are full, and they're perfectly satisfied, and there's no sin in existence. And then enters the tempter, the serpent, Satan. And he comes along and he tells them, actually, Adam and Eve, there's more. There's more that you don't know about. There's more that you can have. He comes to them and he tempts them to disobey God by eating of the fruit in the garden that God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat. I want you to see this in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, It was good for food. 
It was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. See, Eve did not lack food, but she wanted this food. Eve did not lack beauty to behold in the Garden of Eden, but she wanted that which was beautiful, and she wanted to possess it. And it was desired to make one wise. She did not have a lack of ability to gain wisdom and knowledge. I mean, she was walking in the garden of God with the creator day by day. The thing was, she wanted that. She was tempted to take that apart from God. She wanted it on her own terms. And she wanted it ultimately, whether or not God said it was good. She was being guided by what she wanted. She was being guided by her desires, which in this case were contrary to God. This is literally the origin of idolatry. She wanted something that she was not supposed to have, and she was willing to sin to get it. The original sin in the Garden of Eden is no different than the idolatry John is talking about in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, when he tells them, little children, guard yourselves or keep yourselves from idols. The original sin, the original rebellion is succumbing to the temptation to distrust who God has revealed himself to be. All idolatry begins with a false view of God, which then distorts our desires and causes us to doubt him and reject him for who he is. And idolatry seeks to satisfy our longings and desires in life apart from him. If you don't believe that God wants what is best for you, that he wants your ultimate happiness in a way that you can't comprehend, if you don't believe that, you'll be tempted to seek and satisfy those longings for those desires in your own strength apart from him. Whatever you believe will make you happy in life, your fallen and broken heart will turn into an idol. Whatever you believe will make you happy in life, your heart will turn and manufacture into an idol. That's why John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. We can take good things in the world and manufacture them into ultimate things in our hearts. That is idolatry. But I want you to see the consequences of this idolatrous rebellion. What ends up happening to Adam and Eve? Okay, why does idolatry matter? Three things. The relationship between God and humanity is broken and humanity are cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God. The relationship between God and humanity is broken. Secondly, the relationship between human and human is broken. It's fractured. Now there's difficulty and relational pain because of their idolatrous sin in the garden. This is the result of the idolatry of wanting that which God said they shouldn't have. Now there's relational struggle. And the third thing is the relationship between all of humanity and all of creation is damaged, where life is now difficult in every way. There's brokenness and pain in the world because of rebellion against God. See, understanding idolatry matters Because it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like this. See, idolatry of the heart is robbing God of his glory. That's first and foremost what happens. You doubt who he says he is. You mistrust what he says he'll do. 
and you go and try and gather and ascertain that which you want in your own strength apart from his will. Idolatry of the heart robs God of his glory. Idolatry of the heart robs you of your joy. It's robbing you of enjoying God for who he really is. It's robbing your relationships of what they really could be. And it's robbing your life and engagement in all of the world and your work in all of God's world from the pleasure that God has meant you to have. See, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. Our relationship with all of creation is broken. It's why idolatry matters. Because when we continue to commit idolatry in our lives, we are continuing to break our relationship with God, fracture our relationship with the others around us, and struggle to fit in and live in this world without pain and suffering. Right? The pain and suffering is going to come. We just don't need to increase it because of our own idolatry. These are the consequences of idolatry in our lives. Understanding idolatry matters because it doesn't have to be like this. But understanding idolatry also matters because it helps us to understand why we sin. It helps us to make sense of some of the things that we do in our lives and some of the reasons other people around us do things in their lives. See, functionally, we sin because we think it's a pathway to getting what we want. It's a pathway, but it's a pathway that leads to destruction, and it's a pathway of life where God is dethroned and set aside. We're just pursuing what we think will make us happy. Idolatry and understanding idolatry matters because it helps us to understand why we sin. Just think about it in relationship to prayer. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, that is basically all of the consequences of idolatry in the Garden of Eden, of rebelling against God, spoken into three verses on prayer. What causes quarrels and fights among you? The original sin of preferring our own way, that's what causes it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Yes, we're pursuing what we want in our own strength. We desire and we don't have, so we murder to get it. We covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel over it. The relational brokenness all around us comes because we've broken our relationship with God. You don't have because you don't ask, he says. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Christ City, God doesn't answer idolatrous prayers. It's not because he seeks to withhold good from you. It's because he knows that what you think is good for you is not always good. See, when we pray, we pray like Jesus prayed. We say, our Father in heaven, right? We say, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. We, we pray God's will be done in our life because praying that way tells us that we are asking for what we would ask for if we knew everything that God knew, knows. That's what's going on here. God doesn't answer idolatrous prayers, not in the way that we want him to. And that's because he loves us. The answer, at the same time, is not just a life of no desire, no passion, no longing, where you just sort of sit down and go, I'm neutral, I'm beige, I'm vanilla, I'm stagnant, I'm never going to move. That's not it either. The answer is rightly ordered desires. The answer is not a life of no passion and no desire. The answer is rightly ordered passions and desires, where God is enthroned and we've got all 
and that all we have and all we know are under his lordship and authority. There's only really one way to get that, and you can't do it in your own strength. It's only through the gospel of Jesus that we can have our relationship with God restored. It's only through the gospel of Jesus that we can have relational unity and harmony with one another. It's only through the gospel of Jesus that we can have proper meaning and joy in our labors and ventures in this life. See, the gospel of Jesus is healing that which was broken in the idolatry of the Garden of Eden. And the gospel of Jesus heals the brokenness that results from the idolatry in our hearts even now as we live. See, the reconciling power of the gospel is the answer to the fallen state of our hearts. And the transforming work of salvation in Christ is the only answer to our tendencies toward manufacturing idols out of good things in our lives. The gospel is true and better and shows us the pathway to life. That's idolatry. What it is, it's why it matters. What to do about it. What to do about it. In a significant way, the rest of this series is an answer to the question, what are we supposed to do about this? But I want to show this to you quickly. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The antidote to idolatry is not doing better and trying harder as though you could fix all of these problems in your own strength. No, the answer to living in obedience to God is not to try and change the external behavior and just sort of grit your teeth and focus harder and make the rules about rules about rules so that you never break anything and never get anywhere near kind of getting excited and passionate about whatever. Behavior modification doesn't work. Okay, new moralism is not the answer to idolatry. This text is showing us something beautiful. It says that the, the, we might walk in newness of life. There's something going on here that transcends your ability to manufacture faithfulness. Telling you in your own strength you'll fail. You might be able to suppress your anger for a little while, but the, a little while, but the, the, the deeper idol of control will manifest itself in your life in some way. You might be able to stop obsessing over your perfectionism as it relates to your work for a little while. You might be able to suppress that for a little while, but your, deep, your deeper idol of approval is going to manifest itself in your life in some other way. See, the answer to living free from idolatry is knowing that all your sin has been atoned for buried in baptism, and that you have received the new resurrection life of the gospel of Christ, which means you are free to repent of your idolatry and trust in the gospel. You are free to repent of the belief that God does not want your joy and trust him to fulfill all your desires. You don't need behavior modification or new moralistic rules. You need the new creation. You need the newness of life offered through the resurrection of Jesus. This is the way it shows it to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's something going on here about the newness of life offered through the resurrection of Jesus. There is a putting off and a renewal and a putting on that goes. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to repeat this verse all the way through this series, put off your old 
old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. Again, putting off, being renewed in your mind, and then putting on the new life you have in Christ. There's something here, again, that we're going to come back to time and time again, and that is the biblical pattern of change. Putting off, being renewed, putting on. Putting off the old, being renewed, and putting on. Putting off the old, being renewed, and putting on. We're going to give you questions that you can take as self-evaluation. You're going to look at things and go, how did I respond to this? You're going to be able to say, man, I journaled how I responded to things this day. And I did that every day for a week. And I can see that I'm struggling in this area. I need to believe the gospel about my approval in life. I need to believe the gospel about who is really in control. I need to believe the gospel about relinquishing what I think is my power, that I might receive the power of the Spirit instead. There's lots of ways we can cut this, but it's a putting off, being renewed in your mind, and a putting on the new. It's a biblical pattern of change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, in Christ, you have the new creation. You don't need a new moralism. You don't need behavior modification that says, stop doing that, do better and try harder. You need a new heart. That's what we get in the gospel. We are to put off the old self, have the renewal of the mind, put on the new self, walk in the newness of life that God offers us by the Spirit, and recognize that we are new creations in Christ. And I just look at you as a fellow struggler on the way of Jesus. Now, why is this so hard? Like preaching a sermon on idolatry is kind of sickening because you are confronted with all your own junk. Preaching a series on idolatry hopefully will strengthen us as a community but it won't be without pain. So why is this so difficult? Partly because we didn't expect it. We come to Jesus for eternal salvation. We don't want to die. Some of us just want some semblance of peace in our lives. We want to be saved from hell. We just come to Jesus with very small expectations of what that will do in our lives and we don't count the cost. We never expected that it would be so hard because we thought very little of what transformation as disciples of Jesus would feel like. C.S. Lewis captures this in Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's so hard 
Because on a fundamental level, our entire nature and identity is being recalibrated. See, in his gracious love, God strips us of the idols that are suffocating and killing us. He removes the things that we love that are actually tearing us apart. And he shows us new life in Christ. That's why John, the beloved disciple, concludes his letter with a warning that we would do well to hear today. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you're gathered with your house church right now or you're going to be gathering, you can prepare for communion. You can take the bread and the wine that point us to the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus that tell us that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we too can walk in newness of life. See, when we are in Christ, we have identified with his death. He atones for our sin. We repent and come to him by faith that we might receive that newness of life and the resurrection that he's offered. That is the promise to us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to say communion's not for you. Not because we don't want it to be for you, because it's not for you yet. Communion is a celebration of what we have already received by faith. And so when you place your faith in Jesus, gather with the community, celebrate communion to the glory of God. Pray through the liturgy together as a group and celebrate today what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful to you for the painful realities of this entire season for the way that you have done magnificent work by captivating our attention in ways that we may never have listened to you had this pandemic not come. So I thank you for the trials we are suffering for. Suffering produces character and character endurance. And we want to linger in steadfast hope that you are who you have revealed yourself to be. And we just want you to come in and renovate our hearts. Change us and transform us, we pray. We pray that it would be for your glory alone, that you would fill us with joy even as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.